So we're, we're, we're kind of doing a few things this morning. So we're, de- we're definitely going to touch on Palm Sunday, as that's a significant reality today. Um, we're, we're in this sermon series called Good God, where we're really just trying to fix our eyes on the goodness of God. And in particular, kind of under the concept that, um, of what Jesus is doing now. So on the cross, remember, Jesus said, it is finished. You know, te telestai, it is finished. And there, there, that is totally true and, and valid that, that what Jesus had come to do was finished. He had accomplished the goal of coming to earth and, and providing a way of salvation, of, 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 of paying the debt, the sin debt for humanity, of, of taking out the obstacle. Remember, the veil was torn, so there's nothing that separates us between um, man and God. It's just, he accomplished so much in that moment. It is finished, but the reality is, you know, we're, we still struggle. We still battle. There's still sin present in our world. There's still the shadow of death upon our world. We, we still, we still, people still die. There's all these things that, that are still there. And so we've kind of, you know, coined this phrase, it is finished, but then we, we add that, that dot, dot, dot. Like, it's, it is finished, no doubt about it, true. But, but, but Jesus is still working. It's like, it is finished, but, but he isn't yet. And, and it's kind of given us this hope to really look at what Jesus is doing now, because we know Jesus came, you know, and I love what Alec was praying and, and, and the concept of Palm Sunday that Jesus rode on a donkey. He came in as a babe, really born in, in, in serious poverty. And, and as, he, as he rode into his triumphal entry, he rode a donkey. And, and as he, you know, did his greatest um, moment, his greatest feat for all of humanity, it was silent before his accusers as a lamb being slain. I mean, Jesus really just did turn the world upside down um, in the way that we see power and all of these things. And, and so Jesus did this. He accomplished so much in the past. And we rejoice and, and we're so thankful for that. And then we also, you know, have this hope of what Jesus is going to accomplish in the future. Like, like Acts chapter 3 says, he's going to restore everything. And we have this great hope of what's next for us, of, of when Jesus comes and accomplishes that reality. But so then what we've been looking at is, so what is Jesus doing now? What is the good work that Jesus is doing now? And we've talked about intercession how he's interceding for us. He's, he's, um, he's talking to the Father about, uh, about us. He's, he's an advocate for us. He's, he's with us, solidarity. He's walking through all of these things with us. Um, he gives us rest. We took some time to look at that's what Jesus is doing right now. He's looking at you. He's looking at your eyes. He's looking at your smile. He's looking at whatever it might be, and he's going, you should come to me so I can give you some rest. Um, and, and, and he wants to give us rest because he knows it's what we need for the journey. Um, last week we talked about how he's gentle with us, he's merciful to us, and he's teaching us how to be more gentle and merciful. And then today we're gonna look at a little bit more of the work that he's wanting to do, um, in particular how he's wanting to complete the work and, and carry us to completion. Um, and so Jesus, when he rode into that donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he, he was coming in. He was 33 years old. He'd walked in our shoes, so to speak, for 33 years, and he was coming in. And, and sure enough, the response of the people was this beautiful thing where they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were recognizing that Jesus was sent by God, was something super significant, had power that came from something beyond just humanity. They, they were recognizing that he was this great leader and that he could do something and he could bring salvation for the people. Now the problem was they were thinking it was gonna be political salvation. It was gonna be a pro- political renewal that Jesus was gonna bring. And, and Jesus, he didn't do that. He, he greatly disappointed them 
in that regard, so much so that, that really just a few days later, that same crowd in Jerusalem was shouting, crucify him, crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us. Let his blood be upon our heads. Not in the sense of washing and forgiveness, but as guilt. We hate him so much we don't even care. Let his blood be upon us in the great evil. So Jesus wasn't fooled by what they were, they were shouting. Even though it was appropriate and right, it was a little bit misguided. And, and, then, and then after that, he goes out of Jerusalem, and, and this is his response to Palm Sunday. This is his sentiment after going through that whole procession. He weeps. He weeps over Jerusalem, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you in my arms like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. And this is the nature of God. This is the gentle and lowly nature of Christ, that he wants to gather us. He wants us to come into his arms. That's all he's ever wanted. Everything he's done, everything you've experienced, it's all because he's trying to draw you in to his arms so that he can care for you like a mother hen, nurturing and growing and gentle and merciful. And he's still calling out to people today, how I long to gather you together. And when he gathers us together, these are the things that he's doing. He's, he's interceding, he's advocating, he's giving us rest, and then today we're gonna to pick up a few scriptures to talk about another aspect, and, and next Sunday we'll, we'll do some more, but um, Philippians chapter one, Philippians chapter one, verse three through 11 um, is where we're gonna start, and then we're gonna be in Hebrews 12, one and two, and then finish with Jude 24, which Jude just wrote one chapter, so he just gets a verse, he doesn't get chapter and verse. Um, Philippians one, three through 11, and we'll have the scriptures up here on the screen if that helps you. And we got Bibles in the pews in front of you and you guys know about phone stuff. Um, so, I thank God, I thank my God every time I remember you, Paul writes. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's some good news. That is some real good news right there. And then he goes on to say, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So what is Jesus doing right now? He's working on you. He's working on me. He's working on us. He's shaping us. He's molding us. And a lot of times it feels like tilling. Sometimes it feels like planting. Sometimes it feels like watering. Sometimes it feels like de-weeding. Because even though you till the soil, weeds still come up later on. He's working on us. He's working on us. Um, he's rejoicing over any growth that he sees. And yet, he doesn't stop there, but he starts to prune. Just when you think, hey, this is great, he starts to prune. And he starts to bind things together and, and kind of help you shape in the right way. He's rejoicing when any fruit shows up. And then he starts the fertilizing and the tilling process over and over and on and on and on and on. We're in, we're in, we're in spring right now in, in our desert. I woke up this morning and, 
and I looked out of my window and there were all these flowers, you know, some pink ones and some white roses. Um, and I was just like, wow, look at this. And they were all my neighbor's plants that were growing over the wall <laughs> at my house. And so it's still cool, you know. And I actually been thinking about trying to like take one of those plants and like curve it a little bit more over to our side. And I don't know if that's right or wrong, but it would be nice. And that, I mean, they're doing good over there, it seems like. And so I don't know. But anyways, even in the harsh environment of our desert climate, spring still springs. Even though we have famine, we don't get enough water, we have all this dryness, we have these haboobs and dust storms, we have all these things happen, boom. Still, we got a spring. And then it's like two days later, it's gone. But, but we still, even, even here we get the spring. And, and, and that's the true reality of God, it's because God is at work. He has set times and seasons, and even though there's only those moments where we get to see the spring and the bloom and all of those things, doesn't mean there isn't work all year round being done. In every season, he is working. He is working. It's like Troy Palamalu, always working, always working. Anyone? It's a commercial. You don't need to know about it. He kind of has hair like Alec, though, so I don't know. In there. But anyways, he's always working, and so sometimes the season might feel a lot like winter, it might feel a lot like tilling, it might feel a lot like pruning, but all of those things, there's God working in your life. He's working, he's working, he's working, so that you will have fruit. And what is the fruit that, that, that hopefully will be showing up? How do we know that we're going along this process? How do we know that there is a maturing, that, that God is working in our lives? Well, this is the fruit that, that Paul says he longs to see. This is his prayer. Um, in regards to the completion of the work that Jesus is doing in him and he longs to see done in the people he loves. The first one is, is love. It says that your love may abound more and more. Love, love is really a big deal. We, you know, we sometimes make fun of the songs, love is all you need. And, and uh, when people kind of glorify love, we sometimes as Christians are like, well, you need Jesus. <laughs> And, and then you can have love, but it's not just love. You do, you do need Jesus. Um, but it is true that, that the result, the end goal of God in our lives is to make us people of agape, people of love. Jesus says to his disciples that they will know that you are my disciples. They will, they will recognize something different about you and think, huh, they've been with Jesus because of the way you love Love is really what Jesus is trying to produce in us. We should be a people of love. We should be so good at love. We should be loving people all over the place. And yet what's so interesting here is he says, your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Because there's this connection to biblical love. I mean, love is not just a feeling. Love is not just all these different things we're hearing. Love has to be connected with truth. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says love is patient, love is kind, but it also rejoices in truth. And, and, and in our world today, there is a lot of talk about love and kindness, but it's devoid of truth, and therefore it's not love. It's just some nice sentiment, maybe, and it's not actually gonna produce any kind of good for anyone involved. God is love, and without God, you, you can't have love. You only have a counterfeit, and this world is good at counterfeits. Very good at counterfeits. Looking for love in all the wrong places, right? 
because there is only one place, only one source of the real stuff, and that's Jesus Christ. So the first thing is love. It's not the Hallmark or movie-type love. No offense, Hallmark. It's not the Taylor Swift-type love. Maybe a little offense, Taylor. Um, because of Taylor Swift, I've had to do extra work in the lives of my daughters to help them understand what true love is. Um, you know, sometimes she's helping, but most of the time she's not helping me. So, whatever. But it's a love refined and empowered by profound truth. It's patient and kind, yet rejoices in the truth at the same time. It always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, and the truth is it always hurts. If it doesn't break your heart, it isn't love. So the next thing that he says in, in this description is love, but then he says, so that you may be able to discern what is best, discernment. What God is trying to do in us, the work that he's trying to accomplish us, will make us good at discernment. And it's funny, Arthur Lee's in charge of our IT around here and a billion other things. Um, and his, he can wear a hat. He's not one of those other guys. Hats don't fit on him. <laughs> um, but Arthur Lee is always like sending out these little emails every once in a while, like, hey guys, you know, it's great to, uh, to, to, you know, he's always nice and encouraging me about something, but he's like, could you not open the emails from like King Maga Maga or something from Uamada because he's not really a king and he's not really in need of help. And, you know, he's, try he's trying to grow us up in the IT world so we don't fall into the same traps and we have a little better discernment all the time. And, and it's true that that's what Paul is hoping that, that Jesus is gonna accomplish in these young Christians that he's been visiting and touring, that they will grow in their discernment, that they'll be able to understand what is true and what is good and what is right and what is best, he says. And right now in our world, I mean, we, we're dealing with all kinds. There's so many different gospels being preached right now. There's so many ideologies being put out there. Remember, we spent a whole year last year trying to get a vision for the righteousness of God because there were so many other things claiming to be righteous and right. And then what's probably the worst verse in the Bible is that the devil shows up as angels of light. It's like, What? That doesn't seem fair. I'm having enough time when the devil shows up as the devil. And now he's showing up as an angel of light. And it's true. The deception is great. There's this phrase from John Mark Comer that we, we say a lot, and it's that this world is full of deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. And time and time and time again, we hear you know, all these deceptive ideas, and it's not really that big a deal. A lot of them, we can like, eh, that's dumb, or no, but then every once in a while, it connects with a disordered desire within us. And all of a sudden, it's a whole different ballgame. And if we look to society around us, they're not gonna tell us the truth. They're gonna normalize that and say it's okay. No big deal. It's the true you. And that's why we need the scriptures. That's why we need this Holy Spirit work in our lives to help us have great discernment so we don't get led astray and find ourselves in a ditch or worse. The next thing is purity. Paul refers to purity. He says, and you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Purity. I don't, it just, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like it gets much airtime anymore. And, and it's tricky because I, I get, I think, why we don't talk about purity or encourage purity because it's hard for the people in the room who feel like they've already 
blown it to hear people talk about purity. And, and I get that, and that is hard, and that's a reality that we have to face with, but, but, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't really encourage people towards purity and the benefit and the beauty and the contagious reality of purity. Just like impurity is contagious, so is purity. And we need to be encouraging our young people towards purity. And we need to also understand that the purity God is talking about is not one that means, oh, you never messed up. The purity that he's really talking about is the purity he creates in you after you've messed up. So there's great rejoicing in that too. But purity is such a wonderful, important treasure in every aspect of life. And purity is something that, as Christians, we should be walking through this world every once in a while being like, oh, okay, oh, okay, oh, okay. Like, we, you, if you're really walking in purity, you're gonna run into things constantly that are just like, oh, I can't go there. You're at work and everybody's like, hey, we're going to do this thing, and you're like, oh, cool, that's it. Oh, <laughs> can't go that I mean, like, I, I can go with you, to, but I can't go past this point. And it creates this little conflict, it creates little weirdness, and they're like, oh, you're so judgy. You're like, no, I, I, will, I don't know, I'm not judging you. I just, I'm trying to be pure because there's a, there's a blessing in that that I want myself to have, my kids to have, my friends to have, my community to have. And so I'm just, and then you're like hanging out with your friends and everybody's like, oh yeah, we're gonna go see this movie. And you're like, And you're like, I don't know what to do. Or maybe you go to the movie because you're just not quite sure. And then all of a sudden you're like, that's why I wasn't supposed to come to the movie. And then you get up and walk out. And then it's all this weird. Like that, but this, this is you cultivating. This is allowing the purity, the spirit to lead you to purity. And, and it might co cost you something. It's gonna, it, I mean, living in this world, you're going to crash into things. I remember all the kids that used to come over to my house and they couldn't watch Scooby-Doo or something. And I was like, what's wrong with you, man? I don't even like Scooby-Doo. And your parents aren't letting you watch Scooby-Doo? And then I would go to some parents' house, other kids' house, and there's stuff I couldn't watch. And it was just kind of these little rubs, these little things. And at that point, it was just like, well, why don't you do it? And I was like, well, because my dad's big. And he spanks me. <laughs> I didn't know why. I didn't know about purity. I didn't know about the beauty and goodness of purity and how it's so contagious and it's such a great offering that you can offer to your kids later on. In your community, there's so much power and authority in it when you walk in purity. At that point, I just did it because my dad was big. But he had a reason behind it. He wanted me to experience that the freedom and joy and, and blessing that comes with walking in purity. And so that's something that, that Jesus is trying to cultivate in us. And the more he's doing that, it is true, the more rub you will have in this world, the more things you will be like, ah, oh, I can't do all of that. I don't want that. Because this world is not pure. It's not, trying, it's not trying to help you with your purity, in case you were wondering. It's not a neutral site, you know? It's definitely on another territory. Um, so anyways, purity, and then the next thing is righteousness. And I love that these are back to back, because church, you gotta understand this. We gotta understand this. When, when the Bible talks about righteousness, it's not necessarily talking about purity. And that's what our minds do. When we talk about righteousness, we're talking about trying to be righteous, trying to, to kind of stay away from bad things. But the righteousness, when the Bible talks about righteousness, most often it's talking about justice. It's talking about you who have been made pure in Christ now going into the places where there is wrong in order to make them right. 
And as Christians, God is wanting to strengthen you, shape you, form you, build you, empower you, so that you can take your righteousness that he has given and you can go into places where there is wrong and, and, and make them right and bring about justice. And that's one of the things that he, as God grows you up, that's what he's longing to do. Um, I was thinking about this with our pastoral team we were meeting with this week and they were all just kind of sharing different stories of, of like really tough, hard, challenging, you know, situations that they were, that they were, that they were in, involved in, and they were able to kind of help out and all these things. And I was just sitting there listening. I was like, these are weird people. They're really strange people. Um, Because the situations that they're describing are situations that most sane people would avoid. And yet for some reason, these people were were, were, were hearing about those situations. They're like, I feel like I should go into that. And not only do they feel like they should go into that, they feel like I could go into that and, and I think I could do something about it. And I was like, that's because Jesus has been working on you. Because he's actually built you up into a, towards something you actually think you have something to offer. And it's not a prideful, weird thing, but it's, it's just no longer are you afraid of certain situations. It's like my brother Peter, who's a doctor, and so if something goes down that needs medical attention, he's like, I'm in. Because he's been trained up, he's been built up to now go into those situations and actually not be afraid, not be confused, and and maybe even bring some help. And that's something that God's trying to do for us. And so it looks like, you know, James chapter one, orphans and widows, caring for orphans and widows in their distress, keeping oneself unspotted from the world, those are separate things, purity and righteousness. It looks like what Isaiah 61 tells us. You're going into the world to right the wrongs. You're healing hurts. You're lifting the lowly. You're bringing down oppressors. You're setting captives free. You're binding up the brokenhearted. And you're actually now at a place because of what Jesus has done, and you're looking for those opportunities. And when you see it, you're like, I'm in. And you're inclined towards it. That's a big difference that Jesus wants to do in our lives. It's kind of like what he said to the disciples Come to me and I will make you fishers of men. He said, come to me and I will make you fishers of men. He was gonna do the work and sure enough, they all did become that. And then the next scripture, Hebrews chapter um, 12, one and two. Therefore, since we are, so sur- we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He's both. He's the pioneer and the perfecter. Sometimes it feels like he pioneered something in us and then took off on us. No doubt about it, but he didn't. That's what I would do. In another meeting with our staff this last week, they were telling me that sometimes it feels like we start things and don't finish things. And it was a nice way of saying, you. Because as soon as they were saying it, I was like, that's my thing. That's my thing. That is what I'm good at. That is my superpower. Start things, get bored, start something else. Start things, realize all of the work it needs to be done to make sure this thing does well and continues on. Get overwhelmed by that, get confused by that, and go start something else. It's, it's my thing. It's totally my thing. When I think of my wife, my wife is a pioneer. Like, my wife is one of the only people I know that I think could have survived the Oregon Trail or whatever. She's like, man, I wish I lived back then. 
She's just a pioneer. She's worse than me at starting things and not finishing things. In our house, it's just a lot of things unfinished, my friends. We're hoping one of our kids can finish something, you know, grow up and finish something. But we'll have to see what happens. But, but Jesus is not like that. Jesus is a pioneer, and he's all, he sticks with it. Oh, it's such good news. It's such good news. He's a pioneer, and he's the perfecter of our faith. And it just so happens that faith, in according to the scriptures, is so paramount. Faith is actually the hinge between heaven and hell in a lot of ways. For God so loved the world that whoever believes that he sent his son, that whoever believes on him will, have, will not perish but have everlasting life. Believe. Whoever believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Whoever does not believe won't be. There's something so important about faith. So important about what that is. And faith is something that Jesus takes very seriously. He's made it his top priority to grow your faith. To make sure it's not a dead faith or a fake faith or a false faith. But it's a faith in the right direction. And how does Jesus grow our faith? Well, faith comes by the hearing of God's word. No doubt about it. If you're feeling a little weak on faith, read the Bible. You get to hear stories of faith. You get to hear descriptions of faith. Your faith can grow that way. Faith comes when we step out and find God's faithfulness. One of the reasons my family, my wife and I are wanting to go on this trip, this Ireland thing, is because we want to see our own faith grow, but we also want to see the Lord's faithfulness show up and our girls go, hey, that was cool, because they're going to have to face things someday, and we want them to know about the faithfulness of God. And then the last thing that grows our faith is resistance. This one's not fun. This one hurts really bad. This one can be so confusing sometimes. But the Bible even says that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He learned faithfulness through the things that he suffered. And our God, our Father, loves us so much that he's willing to do whatever is necessary to grow our faith to allow whatever's necessary to grow our faith. And sometimes he allows some really horrible things. But behind it and on the other side of it, he has a plan for your faith. And ultimately what faith brings into our lives is freedom. And he wants you free. And so he allows those things to come into our life, those struggles, those battles, those disappointments. Think of Simon, who became Peter. Simon meaning shifty and unfaithful, right? That's what we see Peter all through the Gospels. But then on the other side of the resurrection, on the other side of his denial, on the other side of all of those things, we see a different person. We see a Peter, a rock, who was faithful. And faithful to the end, where the next time he was tested, even at the expense of his own life, he did not deny his Savior. but he honored him. In the last verse, he's preparing you for the throne. All of this work is ultimately taking you somewhere. It's not just because he's bored and needs a project. He's actually trying to prepare you for something. Jude 24, to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Basically, the way it goes is like this. You take your last breath, and we know from, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
And Jesus meets you and says, what's up? And you're like, I have no idea. I've never not known this much ever. And he's like, come on, I want to introduce you to someone. And he takes you before the throne. And he says, this is your maker. This is my father, your father. Who fashioned you in your mother's womb, who's been there every day of your life, who knows everything. And as you look up into your father's eyes for the first time, you find acceptance. For the first time, you look into someone's eyes and you see nothing but acceptance. I mean, maybe a little glimpse is like when my kids were younger and my daughters were younger and I would come home and they'd be like, Daddy, and they'd run over to me because they're so, just, they thought I was awesome and now they're older and they're like, he's all right. <laughs> but full acceptance, not like anything your parents ever good or bad, looked at you, not like employers or friends, not like we've looked at yourself in the mirror. 100% acceptance because of what Jesus has done. And that moment, that throne represents our wedding day with God. That throne represents our, our, our beginning to rule and reign with Christ, which needs a whole nother teaching. That throne represents the most important moment in our existence, literally the culmination, the climax of everything, is that moment as we stand before the throne. That moment represents um, what determines our forever. Everything in life is leading to that moment and what happens in that moment determines every moment in forever. And Jesus, has taken it upon himself to get you to that moment in the way you want to get to that moment. And all he says is just stick with me, abide in me, come to me, stay near me, hear me, listen to me, obey me, hold on to me, and we'll get there. There's other verses I could share, but I, I just, I'll leave you with a couple images as we close. Um, this one's a little interesting, probably takes, probably, probably gonna get some emails, it's okay. Um, but a friend of mine, a guy I know, he's, he's a friend of mine, and um, he, 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 would, he got in a car accident, a pretty bad one, and, and so me and another guy, we went over to his house, and um, we're just checking on him and visiting with him, and he was telling us the story of, of this crash and how he, you know, was going this way, and next thing you know, he got hit, and uh, and and when they, the person was going really fast, and they hit him, and they were they they were pushing him right up against this this kind of barrier thing, and I mean it was this hit was bad, but this hit was really bad too. I mean it was just a horrible situation, and it hit right where he was, and and all of these things, and he was describing it, and then he was describing how in that moment, as that was happening, I mean he literally was like thinking this was it, and then I saw this giant hand up here on the other side. He, and he, he had no concept of what, the, he was just like, I don't know, it was so bizarre. And he's like, you guys seem weird enough that I can safe enough, I can tell you. And he's like, there's just this hand appeared. And I didn't, and he was like, I don't, I don't understand it. He made no sense to him. Why this big hand just appeared and like, just showed up right there. And he said that, 
you know, he's been recovering and everything and he survived and no one could figure out why and all these things. And he was just perplexed by it and he was just wanting to know, like, what do you think about this hand? And the, the guy that went with me was so interesting was saying, dude, I don't know why, but I've been praying for you so much this last week and I kept praying the phrase that the hand of the Lord would be upon you. The hand of the Lord would be upon you. Like literally, he's like, I just kept praying that over and over and over again. And I, and I don't know why, but that was just my simple prayer. It was like, Lord, let your hand be upon him. And he had some reasons why. But it was just so, I was just like, you guys are weird. Um, and, and, and so this moment happens, but then it, get, it got even more intense. He goes, well, then I need to tell you this. And so he said, he said actually, um, I think it was on a Thursday, and he was going into the weekend, and, and, and he said, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm today, so when we were with him, he's like, today I'm, I'm actually going to a meeting where um, I'm gonna get another, another year um, sobriety chip, another token for going another year um, of sobriety. And, uh, and he said, but um, before this happened, my family was going out of town and I had been going through a lot been real busy, real hectic, and he said, I actually was making plans to go drink while they were gone. And, and, and then when this happened, my family didn't go anywhere. I didn't drink at all. And then later that day, he sent us a picture of him holding the chip, just kind of this like, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> um, and again, I don't, I don't, again, this is why I said there's a whole lot of different discussions and questions to come all of this. I'm not claiming a lot of things, but what I am saying is, is that Paul, Paul was a guy who wrote, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And, and the reason that he was confident of that was not because he heard the story of, the, of my friend. It's not because he had these Bible verses. He was saying, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it because he, because he was on his way to Damascus one time when all of a sudden a bright light shone and knocked him down and made him blind because he was on his way to kill Christians. And Jesus showed up and said, no. And Jesus left him blind for a few days and sent someone and Jesus began a good work in Paul in that moment. And then Paul went through all kinds of things from that day on. All kinds of challenges, unanswered prayers, so to speak, about thorns in the flesh, prison sentences. He's actually writing Philippians from prison, from jail. He actually says at the beginning of this verse that I'm in chains and, and I know that these chains all have purpose. He just, he's, he's, he's become, he, he was the person when we first met him and Jesus stopped him. He was breathing out murderous threats. And then we all know him as the apostle of grace. I mean, Paul's just saying, look, man, I am confident that if he can do it in me, he can do it in you. And with how unfaithful I've been to him, and he's still been faithful, I have full confidence to tell everyone I meet everywhere that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Yeah, it's really good news. It's good news. It's good news. It's good news.